While they were in the wilderness, Moses, their leader, would go up on top of this mountain, Mount Sinai, and he would speak to God. And the Bible says that he would speak to God the way you and I would speak to a friend. And so he would be in the presence of God. And then Exodus chapter 34 tells us what happens when he would come down off the mountain after being in the presence of God. See, when you get in the presence of God, you don't come out of the presence the same way that you came in it. And so Moses' face was on fire. His face was shining like the sun. It was glowing and it kind of freaked the people out, which you can imagine if next week I just roll up here on the stage and my face looks like it's on fire. You know, maybe I've been to the tanning bed or out in the sun or something. No, but Moses had been in the presence of God. And it started to kind of bother everyone. And so they made this veil for him. So when he came down off the mountain, he would tell them what God said on the mountain. And then he would put his veil on and then he would go about his life. And then when it was time to go back up on top of the mountain to be in the presence of God, he would take off his veil. He would speak to God the way you and I would speak to a friend. And then he would come down off the mountain. He would speak to the people to tell them what God said. Then he would put his veil over his head again. And so the Apostle Paul, he's reaching into the Old Testament to bring that story into the New Testament. Verse 18 of chapter uh, 3 of 2 Corinthians says, we all with unveiled faces, meaning we all the church with unveiled faces, when we speak to God, we don't have a veil over our face anymore, are reflecting the glory of the Lord. And that means two things. It means one, we're, we can behold the glory of God. We don't look at it face to face. We will one day. We look at it like it's in a mirror. And then we behold the glory of God and then we reflect it to the rest of the world, hopefully. Are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he says we're being transformed from glory to glory. See, ideally, every person should have at least two glory moments. The first glory moment came in the past. It was in the past for you, maybe a moment for you. When God was at work in your life. Now, you didn't know that God was at work in your life probably, but he was at work in you and he was doing a couple of things. The first thing that he was doing is he was telling you about you. And even though you're a wonderful person, even though you're a great person, even though all your friends love you, the truth about you and the truth about me is we have sin in us and we have sin coming out of us. And God was at work in us in the past to let us know about our sin. And not just that we had sin, but that sin separates us from God. He's holy. He's righteous. We're unholy. We're unrighteous. But he was also at work in us to open our minds to Jesus to open our eyes to Jesus, to open our hearts to Jesus. And in Jesus, we learned that our sin could be taken away from us, that we can be forgiven, that through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that sin can be erased, that sin can be done away with, the gap between us and God can be bridged. And hopefully there was a moment in your life, maybe a season of your life, where you said to God, I see that clearly and I want to make that exchange. Jesus, I want you to take my sin from me and I want to receive your life. I want to receive your eternal life. You take away my sin. I receive forgiveness and eternal life and I commit myself to you. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what we mean when we say becoming a Christian or experiencing salvation. That's a glory moment. And hopefully there is that first glory moment in your life. And if there's not yet, maybe you're still in the process where God is... He's, he's having you think about Jesus and you're wondering about him. Keep pressing in. He's worth the investigation. So that's glory moment number one. But there's another glory moment that's coming, the Bible tells us. See, one day, and this is unbelievable if you really start thinking about it. One day, Jesus is going to return to earth. 
Now, for church people, we're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is going to come back. No, but literally, Jesus, he's coming back. And the Bible says that he's going to descend the way he ascended, meaning he's going to come. But when he comes again, he's coming with all of his glory. He's coming with an army of angels, and he's coming with all the saints who have gone on before us in death. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that says, when we see him in that moment, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So when Jesus returns in all of his glory, we will see him and sin, it's done with you. Temptation's gone from you. Disease is gone from you. Sickness, gone from you. Frustration, gone from you. Anxiety, gone from you. Fear, gone from you. We're gonna be glorified just like Jesus. We're not going to be the unique holy son of God, but we'll be glorified the way he was glorified after his resurrection. That's glory moment number two. And the Bible says that we're in between those two glory moments. And what's happening in between the two glory moments is we are being transformed into the image of Jesus. So the idea is, is that when you first committed your life to Jesus, when you first said, I want to become a Christian, I want to make that exchange, forgive me of my sin, That was the least like Jesus that you will ever be. That's the point. And as time goes on, we get closer and closer to that second glory moment. We're being transformed into the image of Jesus. So the idea is that as you get older, as you mature in your faith, you should be more and more like Jesus. So you should think more like Jesus today than you did last month. You should treat people more like Jesus today than you did two years ago. You should think about the world the way that Jesus thinks about the world more today than you did three years ago because we're being transformed from glory to glory into the image of Jesus. And it's a work of the Holy Spirit of God inside of us. Now, there's a trap that uh, church people can fall into. So if you've been a Christian for more than like three days, then you're a church person. It's just an easy thing to get sucked into. (laughs) See, there's a trap that we can fall into because every single one of us has a, a mental, spiritual maturity checklist in our minds. If I went around the room this morning and I said to you, what do you think it means to be spiritually mature? Every single person would have an answer, a few descriptive things that says this is what a spiritually mature person looks like. And, and everybody's list will probably be a little bit different, but most lists will have something about what? Coming to church, right? It's good. Um, reading the Word of God, the Bible, praying, um, and then something about your behavior. A Christian should behave like this, a spiritually mature Christian should act like this and not like that. And that's really great. And all those things are awesome, and we support all those things, obviously. But the trap that church people can fall into is to look at our spiritual maturity checklist and go, well, I'm not perfect. You ever started a sentence with, I'm not perfect? Whatever's getting ready to come after that is bad. (laughs) I'm not perfect, but I'm doing pretty good. Going to church? Listen, not only am I going to church, I'm going to a new church. I'm helping start a church. And if anybody gets extra credit for going to church, it's people who go to a new church helping start a new church. So you're getting extra credit today. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm reading the Bible. Not only am I reading the Bible, this is what you're saying. I'm not saying I'm doing this. I'm reading the Bible. I'm trying to memorize the Bible. My goal is to memorize the whole Bible, every word, every taught and jittle, everything. I'm trying to memorize it right now. That's how much I'm into the Bible. 
That's not really how it works with me, unfortunately. Uh, I pray. Not only do I pray, I have a prayer journal. No diary for me. I'm not diarying my thoughts. I'm diarying my prayers to God. That's how spiritual I am. I have a prayer journal. I'm praying, and I'm behaving correctly. I'm not cheating on my wife. I'm not addicted to drugs. I'm not dependent on alcohol. I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't cuss that much or just when, like, really when it's, like, I'm really mad, you know, but I'm trying to get better at it. <laughs> and the trap that church people can get into, which your pastor is first in line, is to look at our checklist of spiritual maturity that all of us carry around and think that transformation is for somebody else. Transformation is for the new Christian who's addicted to drugs. Transformation is for the the new believer who's dependent on alcohol. Transformation is for the guy who's cheating on his wife. Transformation is the person who's all caught up in stuff on the internet. Transformation is for them. And if you have ever thought one time in your life that transformation is for somebody else, transformation is most, mostly for you. Because nothing gets you stiff-armed out of the presence of God like self-righteous pride and thinking that transformation is for somebody else and not for you is the best example of self-righteous pride. So unless Jesus appeared in all of his glory, but he only came to your house, there's still some transformation left for you on the table because we are living in between these two glory moments. Glory moment number one of your salvation, your commitment to Jesus. And glory moment number two, when everything is complete and we see Jesus with our own eyes and become like him. So we're gonna see a picture of that transformation in Peter today. So turn to Mark chapter 14. We're gonna turn to a few different places this morning to see the process of transformation in Peter. Now Jesus has just celebrated the Passover meal. We call it his last supper because it was the last supper, the last meal that he shared with his disciples before he was arrested and then crucified and then raised from the dead. And so at that supper is where he broke the bread and he, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And he, he lifted up the cup and he said, drink this in remembrance of me, which we just did. And so after um, they celebrated the Passover meal, which was a holiday to help them remember how God delivered their forefathers out of Egypt, um, they leave to go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is going to be arrested. And so some, at some point in that context, verse 27... It says, then Jesus said to them, all of you will run away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, Jesus is quoting Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 out of the Old Testament when he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What's interesting is in Zechariah chapter 13, uh, God is talking about how the shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will scatter. But as they scatter, God is going to use that scattering to make the sheep the kind of people that he wants them to be, which is exactly what's going to happen to Peter. And it also says, all of you will run away. Your version of the Bible may say, all of you will fall away. That's a passive verb, meaning the disciples at this moment are not making plans to abandon Jesus. They're not making plans to run away. They're not making plans to forsake him in his moment of need. 
But something's going to happen, and they're just going to respond to it, and they're going to respond to it in the wrong way, which is usually how I fall into sin, and maybe you too. I don't plan it. I just fall into it. Verse 28, But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter told him, Even if everyone runs away, I will certainly not. So what Peter is saying, Jesus, I can't make any promises for John and James and Philip and Nathaniel and the other Simon and the zealot guy. I can't make any promises for these other disciples. But what I'm telling you right here is I will not run away. I can promise you that. Verse 30, I assure you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now it was common for uh, between the, the hours of midnight to 3 a.m. for the rooster to crow three times. Can you imagine how annoying that would be? But the rooster would crow three times. So what Jesus is saying to Peter is before we even get to 3 a.m., you're going to pretend to not know me three times. Verse 31, but he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. So Peter says the more likely scenario, Jesus, is that you and I die together. And that I would pretend that I don't know you. Now skip down to verse 66. Jesus does go to the Garden of Gethsemane. He is arrested and all the disciples flee. They do exactly what Jesus said they were going to do. Peter eventually kind of comes back. He's following the events at a distance. Jesus is on trial at the high priest's house. And so Peter finds himself in the courtyard of the high priest's house with a bunch of other people. He's warming himself by the fire. Verse 66, while Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's servants came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. Now, when she says that Nazarene Jesus, that's a derogatory way of saying Jesus. It's not a compliment that she's paying to Jesus. Verse 68, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. So Peter just plays it off. Oh, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. That's weird, miscommunication, something's going on. And Peter leaves the center of the courtyard and he kind of sticks to the side near the door. Verse 69, when the servant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you are also a Galilean. Now they knew he was a Galilean by the way he pronounced his words. In our culture, we would call it an accent. He, the way he talked let them know he was from Galilee. Jesus was from Galilee. They're putting two to two together. He must be a follower of Jesus. Verse 71. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, every biblical commentator that I read said that, that Peter is not cursing and swearing in the way that we would in our culture. What he's saying is I swear to God that I don't know that man. And if I do know that man, let a curse be on me. Now, obviously, he's lying. So imagine how terrified, how anxious he has to be to let those words come out of his mouth. I swear to God, who is also Jesus, that I don't know Jesus. Verse 72, immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him. 
before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he began to weep. Now this is the first honest moment that Peter has had in this whole process. He says, I I swear, I promise, I, I don't know him. The rooster crows and it collides in his mind. He remembers Jesus' words. He remembers his words. And then he sees how he failed. See, one of the bad things about transformation is transformation usually starts with a hold, cold, honest assessment of where we're at. Where you're confronted with the reality of what you should be and what you're not. What you should be doing and what you're not. What you shouldn't be doing and what you are. And that is a painful, painful thing. I remember when I was in college, I was doing a summer internship at this church. And towards the end of the internship, my, my, the pastor that I was working for that summer, he called me and he said, Hey, I want you to come by my office and I want to talk right before the, the, as you leave you know, back to school. And so I was excited going into his uh, office because uh, obviously I had done a great job that summer. And uh, I thought, you know, he's going to praise me. And, you know, who doesn't love to be praised? And he's going to tell me about all the things I've been doing really good. And, he's, and maybe he's even going to give me a gift. That would be really, really great. Just a, just a thank you gift. We've just in the history of our church, we've just never had an intern that just brought so much to the table as you have brought. And here's a gift to, to prove our gratitude. And so I rolled into his office and sat down and he gave me a gift, all right, but it was the gift of a good humbling. Uh, because while I thought I was just doing an exceptional job, he saw a few things that he had some concerns about. Anybody ever told you, I see a few things in your life that I'm concerned about? Probably not. They just do that to pastors and other people. But, uh, uh, but it was painful. It was painful. I may or may not have cried in the meeting. I'm not going to commit either way, but uh, <laughs> it was painful. Because that reality staring you in the face of I know this is what I should be, but the truth is, is this is where I am. That's a totally uncomfortable moment to be in. And it doesn't just have to come from somebody else. One of the roles of the Holy Spirit of God is to convict us of sin. Uh, About a year ago, I was reading through the book of Acts and, and... was just loving it and living in it, but, but something began to really bother me um, because I wanted the same things that those guys in Acts wanted. I wanted to be used like they were being used. I wanted the churches that I was a part of to grow and experience life the way that they experienced it. And listen, I think that I have and you have everything that they have. We have the Holy Spirit of God. We got a passion for Jesus. We got the Word of God. So I wondered why their lives were so much different than mine. Why the things that they were doing were different than the things that I was doing. And the impact that they were having was different than the impact that I was having. And I wanted that. And so really just reading through Acts, trying to press into that. What's the difference here? And among the thousand things that could have probably been listed, the difference between me and them. The one that stood out to me the most. I just remember it like it was yesterday. I was reading through it and it just clicked like a light bulb for me. I didn't pray like they prayed. You know, which is a hard thing to say when you've been a Christian a long time, to realize that the, what you've been calling prayer is, is maybe not actually biblical prayer. I want you to feel uncomfortable about the pastor, you know. I was praying. I even had a prayer journal. Hello. Uh, you know. But essentially, I think what I was doing is just emailing in my prayers. 
writing them down and sending them up and hoping for a response in a timely manner. But that's not how these guys prayed in the book of Acts. When they prayed, they wrestled in prayer. When they prayed, they were passionate in prayer. When they prayed, there was urgency in their prayer. When they prayed, um, you know, there was anguish in their prayer. And that was a painful reality to realize what I was calling prayer in my life maybe wasn't actually prayer at all, but just spiritual, wishful thinking. But transformation usually starts when you're confronted with the cold, hard reality of where you are and where you should be, where you need to be. You think about the gap in Peter's life. I mean, in our first section, you know, he's saying to Jesus, I'll never deny you. I'll never run away. All these other jokers, they might run away, but I'll never run away. I'll die before I ran away, run away from you. I'll die before I pretend that I don't know you. That was what he was projecting. But what was the reality? The reality was Peter failed worst of all. Because the other disciples, they just ran away. And they stayed run away, if that's good English, you know. (laughs) He comes back and then pretends he doesn't even know Jesus. He failed most of all. So what he projected as reality wasn't actually reality. Anybody been there? Anybody have a gap in your life where what you're presenting to the world is different from what's actually there? You know, some of us project peace, peaceful person, peaceful life. The truth is anger just lives under the surface. And the people who know you best experience it best of all. Some of us project confidence. The truth is, is you are terrified of what people think of you. Some of us project care and kindness But the reality is, is you railroad over your wife and you railroad over your children and you railroad over your husband and there's not a person in this world who thinks they can even say no to you. We project you name it. And I have projected it. And I have faked it. If you don't know where the gaps are in your life, just ask yourself where your secrets are. You ever ask yourself, where are your secrets? I did it this week. It's painful. Where are my secrets? And who's covering for me? You want to know where your secrets are? Ask who's covering for you. You ever been in a conversation with your spouse and with somebody else and the conversation starts drifting over and you're just hoping that your wife's not going to say anything? She's not going to out you right in that moment? Anybody else been there beside me? You know? Don't tell them, don't tell them, don't tell them that we got here to church and we've been arguing all the way here. Don't tell them, just fake it, fake it, fake it. We're happy marriage right now. We were screaming at each other in the parking lot, but we're all good right now, right? <laughs> Everybody's done that. Amanda and I don't ride to church together, so we don't get into that fight right before. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Jokes, these are jokes. But you find out where your gaps are where the reality that you're projecting is different from the reality that's actually there. And that's where transformation starts. And it can be painful and it can be uncomfortable, but it's good and it's right. Now turn to John chapter 21. This is a pivotal moment in Peter's life and we're probably not going to do it justice the way that it should be done. But what happened is Peter does deny Jesus Three times he run away, runs away, weeps. Well, Jesus is found guilty of 
crimes he didn't commit, but they sentence him to crucifixion and they, they beat him and they punish him and then they make him carry his own cross to Calvary and then they hang him up on the cross and he dies and, and they take his body down, but it's, it's getting ready to be sundown. It's on a Friday and Sabbath is happening. It's Sabbath starts that Friday at sundown. And so the, 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 they're not able to prepare his body for permanent burial the way that they wanted to. And so some of the, the, the women followers of Jesus said, um, we'll come on first thing Sunday morning after the Sabbath is over and we'll prepare his body permanently. And, and so they lay him in a, in a grave and the ladies are going to come back on Sunday morning. Well, when the sun comes up on Sunday morning, you know, it's the Easter story. They, they get there and the stone is rolled away. There's no body in the tomb. And so they go and they tell the disciples, there's no body in the tomb. We've seen an angel and he says, don't look for the, the living among the dead. And two disciples run to the, the grave. John, the beloved disciple, and our man Peter. John doesn't go all the way into the tomb, but Peter runs all the way in and sees with his own eyes an empty grave. And it says that Jesus began to appear to his disciples. And by the time we get to John chapter 21, he's appeared to them twice. And they go back fishing. It's a long story. You can read it and and we'll just shorten it up. But the disciples go back fishing and Jesus, while they're out in the, the water, Jesus comes along the beach and they end up having breakfast with Jesus. And and this is what happens after they eat breakfast. Verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He's saying, Simon Peter, do you love me more than all of these other guys right here? Which is an incredibly uncomfortable question to answer in the presence of the other guys. Do you love me more than that guy? That guy? That guy? What about that guy over there? It's awkward. Peter's the one who started it, though, when he said, all these other guys will leave you, but I'll never leave you. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. Jesus is saying, care for those that I care for. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. So he uses different words, but he says the same thing. Verse 17, he asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So he just appeals to Jesus' omniscience. Jesus, you know everything. You know if I love you or I don't love you. And I'm saying that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. So some serious restoration is happening here in Peter's life. That's what's happening to Peter. He's being restored. He's being redeemed. Three times he denies Jesus. Three times Jesus asks him if he loves him. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times he tells Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Some restoration is happening. It's a powerful thing that Jesus believes in redemption. Because it's one thing if I believe in redemption. It's one thing if our church believes in redemption, but the truth is, is we don't really have any redemption to offer. It's another thing. It's another level when the one who bought the right to redeem believes in redemption. 
So Jesus is the redeemer and he believes in redemption. He believes in restoration and that's what he's doing. He's giving Peter a fresh vision for his life because the old vision got broken. The old vision got crushed. The old vision was Peter, follow me as a disciple. A disciple's job was to to follow Jesus, to learn from Jesus. Whatever Jesus did, Peter was going to imitate. The way Jesus treated people, Peter was going to treat people. He was just supposed to learn, to soak it up, to learn to be like Jesus. Well, what happened when it was time to suffer like Jesus? Peter ran. He scattered with the rest of the sheep. The old vision got crushed. But here Jesus is, is saying again, follow me. And it gives him a new, fresh vision. The important piece of transformation is that you would get a fresh vision of what your life could be like. You know, what happens to some of us is we feel broken about our sin. We get confronted with that cold, hard reality of where we are and where we should be. And we feel bad about it. And we want to start making our way forward. But we never get a fresh vision for what our life could become. And we end up trying to put together the broken vision. Can you imagine what would happen if Jesus said to Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to be my apostle. And Peter said, I want to do it. I want to change. I want to, I want, I want to do that. But all he ever thought about was rooster number one, rooster number two. I swear, let a curse fall on me. If he only ever just lived back in that past moment, he could never become who Jesus was trying to build him back up into. You got to get a fresh vision for your life. Man, what did it look like if you just got a fresh vision today for how you're going to lead your family in Jesus's name? That you would be the pace setter in your home. Not a dictator, not a boss, but the pace setter. That we're going to be a family that not only goes to church, but we're going to pour out our lives in Jesus's name. We're going to serve. We're going to love the word of God. We're going to pray together. Could you get a vision for what your life could be like if you did that? A fresh one. Could you get a fresh vision of how you treat people? Can you get a fresh vision about how you could use your spiritual gifts? Can you get a fresh vision for what your life could be like without that sin that's entangling you up right now? It's a powerful part of transformation. And specifically, part of Peter's fresh vision is to take up the cause of Jesus. Three times he asked Peter to care for those that Jesus cared for because true transformation always results in ministry to somebody it always results in ministry to somebody if transformation ever happens in you but nobody else is affected then it wasn't transformation because as God pours into you it's your natural response to pour out into somebody else and it's this never-ending process of God working in you and then working through you working in you working through you the work of God never stops with you it always spills over into somebody else So we want to be like Peter and we want to get a fresh vision of taking up the cause of Jesus. And there are two just really specific things that I want to set before you today that have to do with our church. Right? The first um, way that I want to encourage you to take up the cause of Jesus this week, we're not big picture people, we're small picture people. So this week, the way you could take up the cause of Jesus is to serve and love the people that you're around this week. Wherever you go, find people to serve and find people to love. Start in your house, then move to your neighbors. Serve and love the people in your neighborhood. Get to know your neighbors. Get out of your house. Get into their house. You want to ask first, but get into their house. (laughs) At work. And you just think going to work is about doing the clock, getting the paycheck, 
providing for your family. And it is so much about that, and that's so important and respectable. But you also go to work to be the light of the world. And so what would it look like to take up the cause of Jesus where you work to love and serve people in his name? You go to the same places every day or every week. You go to the same Starbucks, serve and love the people there. Amanda and I and the kids, we go to this little taqueria restaurant by our house, Mi Tierra Taqueria. It's fabulous. They got the best tacos. They're not even really tacos. They're like a corn tortilla with uh, minced up beef and cilantro and onions. Amazing. Go and visit them. You know, we end up there every Tuesday. So come and meet us on Tuesday. I can't make any promises, but we'll probably be there because that's the way it normally works. Um, we're trying to serve and love the people there just to get to know the owner, get to know the people that we see literally every week. This wherever you are, serve and love people in Jesus' name. And then as God opens the door, have spiritual conversations. Amanda and I were flying on an airplane last weekend, and uh, we were flying southwest. And if you haven't flown southwest, they don't do assigned seating. And, and so you, you want to check in early if you, you want a good seat. But I don't really ever care about getting a good seat because I'm usually flying alone, and I don't mind sitting in the back corner by the bathroom anyway. That's usually the last place, pe- place people fill in. And, uh, and so I wasn't thinking that Amanda and I were flying together, and so we might want to check in a little earlier so we could sit next to each other. So by the time we finally did check in, we were in the C group, and they told us that C and southwest stands for center. And so when we got on the airplane, the only seats left were all in the middle. And so we weren't going to be able to sit together. So she sits in the row in front of me in the middle and I sit in the row behind her in the middle. And, and so I do what any good husband would do is I try to fall asleep because that's the way that uh, I like to do on airplanes. It was a morning flight. I try to like to, I like to try to be asleep before the plane gets off the ground. It's a special talent. You should work on it. <laughs> and so about an hour in the flight, I was multitasking with sleep and reading and listening to something. And I look over the seat to, to see how my wife is doing since I haven't talked to her in an hour. And, um, and she's talking to the guy next to her. And I see her pull out one of our blue Bayou City worship cards. I don't know if you've seen them. They're on the welcome table up there. They're just little business cards that have the name of our church and our website and a map to this place on the back in our service time. Just really simple. And we give those out to people that we talk to. There's a bunch down there. And so feel free to take five or six or ten to, as you invite people to church, you can give it to them. It's a nice, convenient thing. It's always nice to hand something people. People like receiving things, even if it's just a little piece of paper. And so I see her pulling out one of these, one of our cards and handing it to him. Man, I've never been more proud as a husband and a pastor. You know, my, my worlds were kind of colliding there in this one person, my wife. Um, I was so proud because she got out of her world and she just had a conversation, a conversation that was kind and nice and that eventually opened a door to Jesus and eventually opened a door to inviting that guy to our church. It's not hard. Did you know they say that if you called the people that you knew, not strangers, but the people that you knew this week, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, and you said to them, hey, I've been going to this this new church and it's pretty cool. You want to add that in. It's just good ministry. Uh, It's pretty cool. And I really would love if you would think about coming with me next 80% of them would say, yeah, I'll be there. Consequently, did you know that this morning, 80% of Houston didn't get up to go anywhere. They have no spiritual house to call home. And that's what we want to be as a church. We want the people in that 80% who do not know the hope that we have to be able to come and call this place home 
to be able to come and find family here. We don't want to fill our church with 20% of the people who are already going somewhere today. We, there's 80% of our population. They don't have anywhere to call a spiritual home. And we believe that we can be that. And so go serve and love people in Jesus' name. Have spiritual conversations when the door opens. And when the opportunity is there, invite them to come to church with you. You know, we have a short-term goal. I believe in short-term goals. They're easier to meet than long-term goals. Um, but our short-term goal is that um, one Sunday in the next few weeks, like in the next month, not in six months, but in the next few weeks, is um, we would pull out our extra chairs and have to put them in the foyer. That's our short-term goal. Not long-term, not six months from now, not six years from now. But like next week, I got people who, who go and hover around those chairs just waiting to bring them over because there's no seats left in this room. Because we've been out there, not just inviting people to church, not just shoving Jesus down their throats, but we've been out there loving and serving people in Jesus' name. And when you love and serve people with no strings attached, they will talk about whatever you want to talk about. And we want to step in that moment and say, Jesus, and say, come and experience the people of God and the presence of God with me. And so I just encourage you to take that goal, that short-term goal in with you too. That what could you do, what could I do to help get the chairs in the foyer, short-term goal. I think it could be a powerful thing as we're out there. So that's one way this week to take up the cause of Jesus really specifically. The second week is even more specific is we need some people to take up the cause of Jesus here at this church. Um, we don't live here permanently. This is obviously a school. I don't know if you've seen that. We've done a pretty good job with the signage, but it's not our building. Um, and so we borrow it. And so that means we set things up and take things down every week. And we just need some extra hands. So if you've been coming a few weeks and you're thinking like, okay, maybe I'm thinking about this is going to be my spiritual house. This is going to be the place where I come and worship. These are going to be the people that I link arms with and, and live for Jesus' name in this city with. Um, then we need you to come and help us. Um, it only takes about 30 or so people um, or 40 or so people or 50 or so. I don't even know. Somebody else does that. It's somebody else's job. Uh, but um, so it doesn't take a tremendous amount of people. But the same 40 people have been here week after week after week after week. And they need a break, honestly. And so it's just really simple. Showing up at 7 o'clock. Uh, somebody will give you a job and you set things up. And then after church, you quickly take them down and put them. You don't even have to put them on the trailer. You just set them in front of the trailer. And somebody else's job is to put them on the trailer. And so we show up at 7 o'clock uh, to do that. And then, um, then we're done well in time for worship. We pray together at 9 o'clock. And so it's just a really easy thing. And the only prerequisite is that you would have some hands that could set stuff up and tear stuff down. But we need some help. And so I'm appealing to you um, that we need some help. And so after church at the Global and City Outreach Table, there'll be a couple of sign-up sheets. And, um, and so if you're able to come starting next week, um, just you're going to write your name down and your email address, and they'll take the first 30. And then the next 30 will be like, you don't come next week, you come the week after that. And so we can get on a healthy rotation so we can survive and sustain. Right now I'm burning up about 60 people to death because they're doing the, the jobs over and over and over again. And we, they need to just come to church. And, and let the Holy Spirit breathe into them. And so we need some extra help. So if you're thinking about coming, that this is going to be your place, please go. The other way that we need help is we need more um, kids ministry volunteers. Our kids ministry is just off the charts. It's, it's amazing. 
Um, and it's amazing, not just because it's really fun, which it is, but it's amazing because every week um, my son Jackson's in kindergarten and I can say to Jackson, Jackson, what's your memory verse for this week? And he's pretty good about being able to spout it off to me. And so not only are they having a tremendous amount of fun, but they are equipping our children in a powerful, powerful way. They will be the future of this church sooner or later. And so by the time it's their turn to step up and lead, we want them to be well-equipped. And so we need more people to help pour into their lives. For some people, that's just like once every six weeks, just volunteering. You don't have to be a professional. That's other people. It's your spiritual gift. It's what God made you to do. And you would take a more regular role of, of leadership. The difference between that and setting up is we, we believe in our children. So we don't just let anybody in front of them. So we do background checks because we believe in safety. We prepare you. We equip you. So there will be a little bit more training in that. But we're going to have somebody out in the foyer as well. Uh, the, uh, Janice West is wearing a pink shirt. So I don't know how many pink shirts we got today, but just look for somebody in a pink shirt with a clipboard. That's who. And you can sign up um, to help um, volunteer there. And we want every person to volunteer with kids eventually because it's a privilege. It's not a duty. It's a privilege to work with our children. And we want every person to have that privilege. Amanda is there right now volunteering. She loves it. And um, it's stretching for her, but she loves it. And I wouldn't miss it for the world. And so um, I want to bring that to your attention too, because why? Because transformation always results in ministry to somebody. And so get a fresh vision for what your life could be. And then the last picture, just really quickly, and this is where we're ending. I want you to see what happened after Jesus restored him. Acts chapter 4, just a few pages over. Jesus ascends back into heaven after his resurrection. The Holy Spirit comes and fills the apostles. And immediately the church is born. Peter and John are on their way to worship with other believers. They see a man who's lame and they don't, he wants money. They don't have any money, so they give him what they have, which is the power to walk. And so he gets up, he's healed, draws quite a crowd. They take that opportunity to preach about Jesus. And because they preached about Jesus, many people believed and they were also arrested. For chapter 4, the next day their rulers, elders, assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. Now, that's the exact group of people that sentenced Jesus to death. These are the same people where Peter was in their courtyard denying Jesus. Same people. Not a long time has passed since that moment before. And after they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, by what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you cannot overestimate that phrase in transformation. You want your, you want your life to be transformed. You want new to come. It comes through the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, that's another sermon for another day. If we were going to do a part two, that's what it would be about. Transformation part one is for everybody. Transformation part two comes through the work of the Spirit of God inside of you. But we're not doing a part two. Maybe we should. I'll think about it. But anyway, we're moving on. Rulers and the people and elders, if, you, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed... Verse 10, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone despised by you builders who has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people 
by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and knew that they had been with Jesus. Now skip down to verse 19. But Jesus and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. I mean, is that not crazy transformation? Peter, I mean, just like 20 minutes ago, Peter, you can't get him to say the name of Jesus. You can't get him to claim the name of Jesus. He's calling down curses and swearing to God that he doesn't know Jesus. And now 20 minutes later, in our time, you can't get him to be quiet about Jesus. Transformation. It happened to him. When I was in the eighth grade, I was in industrial arts class. Industrial arts is shop class in Willard, Missouri. That's what they called it. And um, I didn't want to be in shop class. I wanted to be in choir. But my parents said I couldn't sing and I couldn't sign up for choir. I had very comforting and loving parents. Um, (laughs) So I was in industrial arts shop class. And I'm I'm glad now as an adult I wasn't real thrilled about it back then. But one day I had to build a birdhouse. And I mean, they let you do everything, like power tools and saws and all kinds of things. It's a miracle that I didn't kill myself in the shop class. Uh, but I built this birdhouse and I got a C because of the kindness and graciousness of the teacher. Uh, that's the only reason that I got a C because it was jagged and bad. Uh, so, but I was happy with a C. And so uh, I went home that day after school. I brought my birdhouse home. I set it down on the counter in our kitchen and started watching TV or whatever. And my dad came in. Now, what you got to know about my dad is if my dad built a birdhouse, birds from all over the world would come to bask <laughs> in its glory. I mean, the man can just build stuff. Just it's crazy what that man can build. And so uh, he walks in to the kitchen and he sees my birdhouse and he goes, What's this? I said, that's a birdhouse, and I got a C, which means I'm average. So out of all the people doing building this year, I'm average. So leave me alone. (laughs) But I don't know what he was thinking, but he was going to think that uh, we were going to have a cool father-son bonding moment. And so he thought it was going to be a good idea if we went out to his garage and rebuilt my birdhouse. And so we go out to the garage, and if you ask the man today what happened in his garage, he would say, we rebuilt the birdhouse. The truth is, is that we didn't do anything. I stood and watched as he rebuilt my birdhouse for me. It hangs in his garage uh, today, I guess, as a memento of the time that he rebuilt my birdhouse. I'm not really sure (laughs) why he keeps it around. But the the honest truth is, is that even when he did it with all of his expertise, it still didn't look right. Because I'm the one who cut the pieces. I'm the one who measured. I'm the one who drew the lines. I'm the one who missed the lines as I was moving them down the saw. So even when he put it together, it still didn't look right. And I didn't want anybody to leave this morning thinking that transformation is about you rearranging some pieces of your life. A little bit more of this, a little bit less of this, a little bit more effort here, and I'm good. That's not transformation. 
Transformation is a spiritual work of the Spirit of God inside of you. It's a supernatural work. It's change. It's honest to goodness, supernatural change in you. It's new life in you. It's new creation in you. So nobody leave today going, I need to work harder. I need to muscle up some extra effort so I don't fall into that again. Leave today going, I've been confronted with the honesty of where I'm at. God, come and give me a new vision for my life and give me the power to live it out. Especially if you're not a Christian. Becoming a Christian is not about rearranging pieces of your life. Start going to church. Start doing more of this. No, it's new life, new birth. And I'm hoping today may be the day of salvation for somebody where you say, I want to make that exchange. I want Jesus to take my sin. I want to receive eternal life. And I want to commit my life to him. I want to become a Christian. At the end of our service, we just dismiss and do a few announcements, but we have ministry team up here in the front. And if today is the day that you want to mark in the sand that I want to become a Christian or I want to tell somebody I'm ready to believe, then you come and tell one of these folks and they'll tell you their story about what it looked like for them and we'll get you plugged into this family. But transformation is for everybody. Whether you're new, whether you're old, whether you're young, whether this is your first time or you've been to church a thousand times, transformation is for everybody. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would come and do a transforming work among us. We pray you would do a supernatural work. We pray that uh, we wouldn't just begin to rearrange pieces, but, uh, um, but you would do something in us today. For some, God, I pray you would just convict us of our sin. Show us the gaps. For others, just give us a fresh vision of what our lives could be. And Lord, do this work. We want this to be a place where people's lives are changed in huge ways and in small ways. So come and change us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.